0: I'd like to think with you this morning on one particular statement within this substantial passage of Paul's thinking that is, to me, most amazing, most amazing indeed. This statement was amongst the favorite Bible verses of the founding pastor of this congregation, Dr. Arthur de Kreider. In fact, after the service today, you could find this very passage, these very words, this specific verse emblazoned upon the memorial Bible that is positioned beneath his portrait in our oak room. The statement comes from the mouth of God himself to the Apostle Paul, and it reads simply like this, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. I want to invite you to say that with me. Read that verse with me. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. I can think of a few ideas that run more contrary to the spirit of our age to the way that most of us have been trained to live than this particular idea, this strange notion that power may be found not so much when we are strong as when we're weak. Honestly, how many of us in this room were raised to think of weakness as the pathway to power? How many of us ever received instruction about the importance of being weak in our lives. I certainly wasn't. I can vividly remember varieties of lessons that I heard on this particular topic, and one particular experience that made an indelible impression upon me very early in my Christian journey, or, or childhood journey. It was a game That I was invited into by an older relative of mine. It involved wrestling. We would often do it on the front lawn of our home's property, sometimes in the living room. And the object of this particular game was for me to get free. I would be entangled in the strong arms of this relative and the tight vice-like grip and I would struggle and struggle and twist and poke and punch and kick and did everything I could to break free and I would sometimes succeed in doing just this and I would get up and on my little chubby, stumpy legs I would race away as fast as I could and my relative would reach out his long arm and swipe out my legs from beneath me sending me crashing to the ground. And then he'd entangle me all over again. Well, it would often start out like a very fun game. I would enjoy it at the beginning. But then over time, after repeated experiences of momentary freedom and then that crashing to the ground again, my feelings about the experience would suddenly change and I would find myself flushed with passion and tears would well up in my eyes as much out of out of frustration as as out of pain from hitting the ground over and over again and I would just start to have my lip tremble and I'd begin to burble and my relative would point at the tears in my face and he would say ah you're losing the game you're losing the game And the lesson began to set in. I wasn't very old, but I got the lesson. It was retaught to me. Many, many times in many other ways, I grew up in this very affluent suburb with all of these world-beating people who lived in this community I lived in. And the simple message was this. Tears are for losers. Winners show strength. You might hurt, but you do not let other people see it. You might make mistakes, but you better cover them up, spin them, make up for them as fast as you possibly can. You may have worries or doubts, but you need to suppress those. You may have flaws, but you must keep up appearances. Rise above it, tough it out, never let them see you sweat. In other words, if you want to be powerful... Do not be weak. Do not, by all means, be weak. I learned those lessons really well. I mean, maybe too well. When a wave of um, death and divorce and tragedy swept over our family at the tail end of my high school journey I maintained a surface stoicism I still got A's I still dated the cheerleader captain I still uh, played varsity sports did acted in plays my my schoolmates this is ironic named me best dressed senior I was I was physically best dressed emotionally best dressed, I took care of the surface. I really did. Secretly, I was drinking and taking drugs to anesthetize myself against the absolute chaos and pain that was going on inside. My friends were wondering, why isn't Dan sharing with us what's really going on? He's not talking about the divorce. He's not talking about the obvious devastation going on in, the, in his life. A girlfriend, I've shared this story before, broke up with me saying it was because I was too smooth. I said, that's bad? <laughs> and she says, yeah, it's bad. You, you never let me into your hurts and your hopes and your pains and your, your feelings. You give me No cracks or crevices in this smooth surface of your life. You're giving me nothing to hold on to, Dan. And I'm thinking to myself, don't you get it? That would be weakness. That would be losing the game. God has done a lot to change my heart and my perspective about these things over the years, thankfully. But I will confess that I still find myself sometimes slipping back into what I call the invulnerability game, right? And I'm going to guess that I'm not alone in this. You've grown up in a culture much like I grew up, many of you, we come by this honestly. We, we're surrounded by a world that idolizes human strength. You know, we, we don't even necessarily care if the team wins or loses. We're going to enjoy watching the sheer musculature of those football players later this afternoon. We live in a world that just is, is fascinated by superheroes. Our magazines are filled with airbrushed images of the nearly absolutely perfect faces and figures of all of these people that we look up to, we inhabit, a live-strong culture in which there's, there's a lot of people winning the game, obviously, and where we could too if we just bucked up or buckled down harder. And it's into this kind of a world that the voice of God comes saying, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. It's hard to get that, having grown up as many of us have. It was hard for Paul to get this, growing up as he had. Saul, as he was first known, grew up in Tarsus, which was the San Francisco of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, on the Mediterranean. It was home to the most prestigious university in the ancient world at that particular time. By circumstances we do not know, Paul's dad had been made a citizen of Rome, This was a stratospheric honor. This was like being made a member of the uh, British realm. It was one of those amazing accolades that opened doors every single way, every place you went. Your family thereafter sort of had the veneer of the knighted, of the nobility. And it would have no doubt, as this honor was passed down to Saul, made it really easy for him, relatively speaking, to get into the very finest schools. And in fact, it did. Saul was admitted to the to the greatest law school in that part of the world. He was admitted to the to the school of Gamaliel, the greatest legal mind in all of the Jewish world, situated right there in Jerusalem. And Paul or Saul took that challenge on with passion and learned everything he possibly could and emerging a few years later with this elite law degree, he rapidly began to climb the ladder. He was quickly embraced by the Pharisee party, the party of perfectionism, the party of moral strength in Israel, and they took, them, uh, took him in as their own, and then he just began to climb as this amazing figure. He became this ruthless prosecutor that successfully uh, put behind bars or even put to death all kinds of ne'er-do-wells and, and weaknesses in the society, among them many members of the cult of Jesus. And then, and then came Saul's amazing encounter with Christ on the Damascus Road. You know that story. Many of you know it. How Christ personally confronted him there, knocked him off his horse in more senses than one, struck him blind, and then reopened his eyes. And after Paul's conversion... With his name now changed to that name, Paul, the strong man from Tarsus begins to embark on a whole new series of remarkable conquests. Paul traveled the breadth of the Roman world. I mean, very few human beings have walked the miles, sailed the miles, ridden the miles in one lifetime that Paul did. He founded church after church after church all across the landscape. He he wrote some of Christianity's most brilliant theology and, and pastoral letters. He poured all of his formidable strength and gifts into building up the body of Christ he had once sought to destroy. And at some point in that journey, God chose to give Paul just a glimpse of what he was working for and he gave him a a capacity to see into paradise itself into glory itself And Paul writes about this modestly as if it's the experience of somebody else. But what he's really saying is, I was caught up into paradise and I heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. Just imagine, think for a moment, what Paul's Christmas letter or Facebook posts could have been like. Would love to have written more, but need to get back to exploring paradise. Writing most of the New Testament, transforming the entire Roman Empire, love Paul. (sighs) Talk about a strong man. On every level, spiritually, intellectually, socially, vocationally, Paul was winning the game. You get that? I mean, he was just, he was killing it. It was like he had no weaknesses. But underneath, there was this nagging issue. And Paul tells it like this I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me now scholars have been speculating for centuries as to what paul meant by this thorn in the flesh was it some physical ailment he had eye trouble malaria epilepsy something else was it some form of spiritual harassment or moral temptation. Maybe it was lust or chronic anxiety or a haunting guilt over past misdeeds. Could it have been persecution he was talking about from his enemies that pierced him like a thorn? I guess you're just going to have to ask him one day because the Bible doesn't tell us. It leaves it open. I've often thought that was kind of nice because it helps me read into it my stuff My thorns. What we do know is that Paul believed that God had permitted this thorn for good purposes. Paul knew how God had allowed Satan to test and refine his servant Job in the Old Testament, and how that ironically his weakness, his struggle, his pain had made Job an even stronger witness. He had seen how when Satan hindered Paul's own travel missionary plans uh, along the course of his journey, the gospel was surprisingly unexpectedly then preached in Berea and Athens and Corinth with amazing effect. And so so Paul, at this point in his life, he's gotten to that place where at least on most of his good days, he's able to believe that even the most painful experiences of life can be made to serve God's good purposes. Do you believe that? Do I believe that? In this case, Paul is pretty sure he knows why God has permitted this unnamed affliction to be with him. I was given a thorn in my flesh, he says, in order to keep me from being conceited. That's, a, that's an amazing confession to me. I don't know if it hits you the same way. I mean, Paul is basically saying, God, you really know me. I mean, you know where I grew up. You know who my dad was. God, you know where I went to school and how very well I did there. You know what a successful Pharisee and lawyer I was and how influential I now am as an apostle. God, you know, I've got this pretty great mind here that you've given me and I've got all of these inexpressible insights I was able to see in heaven and I could so easily think, God, wow, look how I'm winning the game. Look how strong I am compared to others. God, you know how my pride, my perfectionism, could so easily run away with me. But there's this thorn, <laughs> this painful Persevering, recurring problem I carry around with me that just keeps reminding me that I need you, that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, that I'm a mortal hungering and longing for immortality. I am vulnerable, God, and I so need your grace. Thank you for the thorn. Thank you for the thorn in my flesh. It was not easy for Paul to get to that place of clarity and humility and acceptance. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take this thorn away, he tells us. Three times. That sound familiar to you? You remember how Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane pleaded three times? Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. And yet, like Jesus, Paul's final affirmation here is if it advances your purposes in me or through me, let the thorns come, Lord. Let the thorns pierce my flesh. Thy will be done. Thy will be done. To which God says, My grace will be sufficient for you. My grace will be sufficient for you, my son. My daughter, for my power is made perfect in weakness. In light of those words, I want to take you back to that wrestling match on the long, long ago. ago. I'd like to tie it to the text we've been studying, apply it to your life. And then let you go. Many of us, I think, grow up being taught that the goal of life is to be strong. And that is partially right. Okay? That is partially right. As we have explored in recent months, God's desire is that we develop an almost unbreakable resilience. Right? That's what he wants for us, that we have that kind of of capacity to handle what comes in this life. To quote Charles Stanley, however, what the world views as being strong is often nothing more than weakness under wraps. I didn't really learn to be strong in the fullest sense of that word on that lawn during those wrestling matches. Okay? I just didn't learn the kind of strength I would really need in life from those wrestling matches. I did learn a stiff upper lip. I I definitely learned the process of building shields to hide my hurts and my hopes and my fears. I got a whole lot smoother, but not a whole lot stronger in the deepest sense. I learned to defend myself through the years and to depend on myself through the years, but I was missing out on that vastly greater kind of strength that I would one day find, by God's grace, when I dropped my shields and let in his sufficiency. His sufficiency, far greater than my own could ever be, and allowed in the love of God's people. What about you? Where are you in that journey? The great Christian author Madeline Lengel once observed, when we were children, we used to think that when we were grown up, we would no longer be vulnerable. But to grow up is to accept vulnerability. To be alive is to be vulnerable. Until Christ makes all things new, We're going to make mistakes. We're going to have our hearts broken. We're going to injure one another. We're going to have devastating days and hard years and maybe even decades. And our bodies will eventually fail us altogether. And it is what we do with that vulnerability that truly counts. When we try to carry it alone, it becomes a terrible secret and an awful burden. When we share it with God... When we let others into it, it becomes a place where God meets us with his gracious power. Have you ever considered, ask Stephen Furtick, a pastor in North Carolina, that your greatest weakness may actually be God's greatest platform for showing his power and his glory in your life? Think about that. Have Have you ever considered that your greatest weakness may be God's greatest platform for showing his power and glory in your life? Again, consider the Apostle Paul. As a Roman citizen, Paul was raised to think of strength in terms of wealth and popularity and coercive power. As a Pharisee, Paul learned to think of uh, of strength as what you earned by your moral perfection. Both of these attitudes were arrogant. They put far too much confidence in human performance to shape a good result. And this conceit was Paul's greatest vulnerability, his greatest weakness. But Paul. Turned that vulnerability over to God. And God made it his platform. Through Paul's weaknesses, God showed that there is no power for transformation greater than servant love, not coercive power. There is no power for salvation greater than the cross of Christ and his righteousness, not human effort. At the time that the emperor Nero executed him, Rome regarded Paul as a lonely fool and failure. The Pharisees had rejected him as a stupid sellout to a cult that was obviously not going to last. And today, we call our dogs Nero, and the Romans name their cathedrals Paul. And Paul's message of God's grace trumps radical Islam and every other form of Phariseeism and remains the hope of this world. I'd like to hear an amen Amen. because it's the truth. Here is my closing question for you. What might God do with your weakness if you really handed it over to him? What might he do with these weaknesses? Is there some some hidden sin that you need to confess to him today, right now, before you leave here so that you can begin to experience his power for forgiveness and renewal? Is there some pain in your life some panic or stubborn pattern that you've been hiding, that you might actually share with someone else, maybe somebody right here before you leave, so that you can begin to experience the power of God at work through his body, the church? Is there some thorn in your flesh for which you need to ask God's help in starting to see its particular place in God's perfect purposes. Don't be afraid of your vulnerabilities, okay? Just give them to him. His grace is sufficient for all your needs. For my power, says the Lord, is made perfect in your weakness. Please pray with me. Lord, some of us here today are going through things that feel very much like devastating weaknesses, like genuine thorns. In our flesh. We're jobless, some of us. We're struggling in our marriage or our parenting. We're without the love of our life. We are financially challenged. We're caught up in pornography or alcohol or drugs. We feel we are unattractive or unwanted or unworthy of care. Help us to see that it is precisely where we are weak like this that you are strong and ready to meet us with your all-sufficient grace. Make our very weaknesses the platform for your glorious work. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.